0: Welcome, you're listening to the Malcontent News, Russia-Ukraine war podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts.
1: I'm here with Katie Livingstone, uh, who also reports for Malcontent News, and uh, we are going to visit the role of women in Ukraine during the war. Uh, Katie, I know that you have been in Ukraine since before the start of the full-scale Russian invasion, and you've traveled around widely. You also specialize in gender issues. What is your opinion on the dynamics and changes of the role of women in Ukraine during the war?
2: Hi, Zarina. It's great to be here. Thank you. I am uh, actually I've been working on a book about this exact topic, the role of women in war here in Ukraine now, because it is a unique situation in many, many ways. Women and children are largely the primary victim of war uh, historically and and across the world, and that can be seen here, too, even just in the the number of people who have had to evacuate the country uh, eight million at the beginning of war, mostly women and children. But at the same time, we see an incredible upsurge of women taking on new roles in every level of society. There are more women in the Ukrainian military than any time in their history. That's both on the front line and in supporting roles further back. There are more women leading up volunteer organizations here and abroad that have brought in millions of dollars of aid for the military, for humanitarian needs, etc., and more women just taking on new roles in society as truck drivers, as other positions that historically here were very rarely filled by women. And this is an incredible thing to see because it does start to change society. It starts to change the makeup of gender roles in the country. And gender roles are something that historically have limited progress towards gender equality, which is very important for development of a, of a country. So what we're seeing here now is women expanding what it means to be a woman, expanding the role of uh, the, the uh, expanding the, the meaning of femininity. They're not becoming men, so to speak, or taking on men's roles. They're making roles that were previously categorized as male, female. Um, and this is something that, that is really special, and that I think will ultimately change the makeup of Ukrainian society in the future.
1: Well, this is fantastic. Thank you very much. And with this great introduction, let's take a look and visit with many Ukrainian women who took upon the new roles during this war. Thank you, Katie. In today's episode, we'll hear from several remarkable women in Ukraine who have joined the collective effort to defend their nation during the ongoing Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. I had the privilege of speaking with Natalia Huminyuk, the head of the United Coordinating Press Center of Security and Defense Forces in southern Ukraine. We'll also meet Anna, a record holder in the Guinness Book For the longest solo female motorcycle ride around the world, who has now dedicated herself to serving in the armed forces of Ukraine. Additionally, we'll hear from Tamara, a dedicated volunteer at a military hospital in Odessa, and Victoria, a successful businesswoman from Kherson who transforms a high fashion factory into a military uniform sewing plant. Their stories shed light on the resilience and strength of Ukrainian women amidst the ongoing Russian aggression against Ukraine. First of all, a woman is always feeling herself in many dimensions. She is a wife, an individual, uh, but she's also a stimulus, an inspiration. If she's holding up, if she's not being weak, if she is holding the information front, uh, this is an example for a man, Uh, this is inspiration for men, and uh, they could see that if she's like this, they could be powerful. And this is also important aspect of be, of showing care. Uh, like I always see uh, men in trenches and they're cold and sometimes I feel like giving them a hug just as if they were my children. And yes, they're uh, men and they are strong and powerful and they they feel this and they are feeling even stronger and they are standing straighter and I use this ability I I use it to bring out this inner power and I I understand that all together we can do it. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, but all together, our whole country, uh, we are holding it up. And even if I don't hold the weapon, physical weapon in my hands, uh, I do hold the informational weapon and I, I can use it. And. I hope that it's a powerful way to uh, fight against our enemy. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have joined the territorial defense.
3: No, not really. That's not territorial defense. That's another structure.
1: Within the army, within the Ukrainian army. That's all we can say. We're not going to go into details because operational security, based on that, could you please speak to our audience, the global community, tell them what it is like to be defending Ukraine these days, what is life like? How can the global community, how, how can the world better understand the life of Ukrainian military?
3: Well, um, I can say that I work with the foreigners, with the foreign volunteers that came to Ukraine to help us and to defend our country. Well, there are also different groups and different structures. Uh, with the foreigners, there is International Legion. I work for Latin Legion. So that means that I work with Spanish speaking and Portuguese speaking people, mostly from, from Latin America.
1: And it is called yeah. the Latin Legion? That's the
3: Latin Legion.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: At the moment I'm more concentrating on a Brazilian group. We have like the whole platoon. We are preparing for a lot of interesting things. <laughs> Kind of, and for me, it's, it's really, really impressive, you know, it's quite understandable when Ukrainians come even from abroad or come to the army to defend. It's really impressive when the four that have nothing to do with Ukraine, actually, and have having been in Ukraine. But they come and they risk their lives in order to help. For some of them, the motivation is kind of financial, right? Because uh, some of the people are coming from from poorer areas. For example, in my group, most of the people who came to Ukraine they are kind of well off. They had a good life in their countries, good job, place, etc. But they came to defend to defend Ukraine. And for me, it's still it's so much so impressive. There's so much respect. And when I ask them, hey why are you here according to what i know about you you had a great life in your country and now you're risking your life and the risk that you will not come back to your family and they said that i cannot leave with with them, the understanding that there is so much injustice injustice in your country and i came just uh just to help and their motivation is to help and uh, to support for me this is this is really great and i wish that that more people actually abroad in foreign communities, they realized that there is still the war. There is still the war in Ukraine. And like today, I woke up in the middle of the night from the sound of shakets. They were flying above my head, and you know, above <laughs> my building. And, and the sound was, I mean, it was hard and it was, it was loud. And then the sound of explosions, right? we are still in the war. And I would like that the foreign community realizes that. It's been more than one year and a half already, I mean, this full-scale invasion, and some people are kind of getting used to it and to the news, and they don't care much about it, and some even don't know that the war is still ongoing. I would like to emphasize that the war is on and is getting worse and worse, and we just have to combine all our strengths, not just Ukrainians, but, but the whole world.
1: You and I met while visiting the zero line frontline when you were still in your journalistic capacity. Now I know yeah. that you live in this life. Could you share just a few words of how it is being there, living there day to day?
3: Well, oh, you know, finally I realized that this is my place in this sport. Because as you know, I I've been searching for my place. I've been a little bit of journalist, a little bit of volunteer. But my heart was always on the military side, and what stopped me before was kind of the lack of freedom, the necessity to to follow the, the rules and the discipline, etc. But finally, I realized that, that I had to go for it, and now I feel that I'm satisfied with my decision. And even though it's it's really hard, like, I mean, I don't have any weekends, I don't have any personal time anymore. <laughs> so my day starts at 6 a.m. and I, I finishes at midnight. We are preparing for a very interesting but very complicated mission. I will not say much about it. I don't know what will happen there. And actually, yesterday I was driving in my car and I was thinking about it. And I felt that there is the fear inside of me, a little bit of fear. And I was wondering what kind of fear is that? And I realized that this is the fear to get scared, the most important moments when I have to be strong and courageous. And it's always like balancing, you know, on the edge, uh, you realize that you're on your at the right place, but on the other side, you're always questioning yourself. But well, it's, it's always like always trying to fix your mind and always kind of trying to concentrate on the mission and on nothing else. It's more like work with your mind and with with your psyche for me personally and also uh, I'm responsible now for quite a big group of people, not on the combat side, but administration, organization, logistics, etc. Sometimes I just feel that it's too much burden on my shoulders. Okay, not very fragile, but still, <laughs> I realize that if something goes wrong, I will blame myself. Kind of huge responsibility, and I know that those people they look at me, they trust me, and I'm just trying to, to do whatever I can, but also understand that I'm not kind of the almighty God. <laughs> Many things don't depend on me, actually. I can knock on the door, right? I can scream, I can (laughs) I can call to all the people and officials around me, but sometimes it's just a matter of luck or decisions of higher power, right? It's also it's kind of balancing between doing what, whatever I can, use the maximum power of myself, and then realizing that some things don't depend on me and just trust to the universe. For me, it's kind of it's a little bit difficult this <laughs> uh, to find this fine line because I'm used to be always in control. Being like in my traveling on the motorcycle around the world and the same now. And sometimes my personal commander he tells me, you cannot resolve everything. It doesn't depend on, you just accept it the way it is and for me sometimes it's very difficult. Yeah, there's the lack of ammunition, there's the lack of equipment, there's the lack of a lack of everything that we need. Sometimes we go to the mission and we know that that's not enough. What we have, it's okay, but it's not enough. And if something goes wrong, we are sorry to say. That's just, that's like this.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing this insight. I have so many questions for you, but this life is hard. How do people adjust to living in trenches?
3: We kind of have different missions and not all of them are in trenches. Some of them, they're quite short missions that we go and we come back. So quite often I have the possibilities to take a shower. But <laughs> next mission the thing that for a few weeks I will not have this possibility. So I'm actually wondering how I will do that. But I'm preparing some kind of something for myself. <laughs> Maybe I will make those those little braids, right? Braids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't have to wash my hair uh, every second or so day because mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks I think I, I will not have any shower at all. I'm prepared for that kind of mentoring. That that's all right. That's even fun. That's not fun, but i think for me this is the least fear but also on the other side i'll be the only female right in that group yeah that also kind of matters for males uh, some things are kind of easier than for us but that's all right i kind of uh, i I want to test myself and to challenge myself and also i know that they're so my comrades, the guys from, um, from my group, they're so respectful and they're so polite and they're so caring for me that I feel that I'm just surrounded with knights <laughs> that will protect me. So I really don't mind and um, I'm happy to, to sacrifice some of my comfort for them.
1: Well, thank you very much, Anna. Please be safe. I know as much as it possible under the circumstances. We'll hopefully check in with you when you're back. Thank you for what you're doing can be enough in Slava
3: Ukraine.
0: You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine war podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. At
4: the beginning, it was a really hard job. I never worked in in hospitals before, and when you meet uh, people really heavy injured, like uh, with amputations, very young boys, with um, eye problems, with uh, burned skin, with uh, such a terrible things, yeah you, know, you feel like wow, you're really very depressed but then slowly, slowly uh, you know, I start to understand that. You have to do this job. You have to enter a clinic room where you can find four, five, uh, sometimes six injured soldiers. And you have to be positive when you enter, even if you want to cry at this moment. Our very important mission is to talk to them because first right. two, three days in hospital, it's the most difficult days for them because psychologically they're still fighting and they are sometimes very... Mm, stressed so you need to sit next to the guy so we can see who is worse who is better we need to talk to them to to discuss things sometimes the the problem is that they lose everything all their stuff in a battlefield backpack phone they do not remember phone number of their relatives they lost documents uh, you have to understand, when when guys came to our hospital, sometimes they have nothing on them. Because all, all dress is cutted on the battlefield, full of blood. And they bring them, sometimes even with helicopters, they bring them really naked, just covered by shit. So uh, And they need everything, completely everything, from clothes uh, and medicine. We are trying to find used phones for them just to help them to get contact with relatives. If they need documents, we also try to find their documents. And sometimes the other part of our job is uh, that hospital, uh, not always all necessary things for treatment, uh, because some of these treatments are extremely expensive and simply rare. And for some soldiers, we're asking uh, people to collect money to help them with uh, treatment. Ukrainian state cannot cover all cases. What kind of injuries do you see the most? I work in one hospital, but in my situation, it's mostly trauma uh, of legs and arms. Amputations are the most common. Also, concussion a lot of guys who have fourth, fifth, sixth concussion case. Mm-hmm.
1: How do soldiers take amputations? How hard it is psychologically?
4: Depends on person and it depends on stage because when they just arrive, say the guy lost his leg like two days ago, he cannot believe it. I saw changes with time because this treatment is a very long process. Some, they they really get depressed, so it depends, do you have one leg or two legs, how high is it. When it's above knee, uh, it's really terrible. When amputation is below knee, they are more optimistic because they know that there is treatment.
1: I see young men and sometimes women with missing limbs in this. I also see that many of such soldiers go back to fighting after
4: injuries,
1: How often it is in your practice that soldiers once recovered go back to the front line?
4: I want to tell you about one uh, guy. His name is Sergei. I found him... After her son's operation, for which took place in November 2022, I found him uh, in hospital, in a room, with uh, amputation of one leg, below knee, and he was heavy injured also, the burns. And then when uh, we started talking to him, he, he was very optimistic. I realized that one of his eye is artificial. He said, yes, because I'm fighter from 2014, and I lost my eye in operation in 2016 when Russia fighted against us in Donbass. Right. And now he lost his lap. different levels, different stages, like last year when we were under heavy attack, we really suffered in hospital. It was extremely cold because the Russians destroyed critical infrastructure and at some moment was without electricity including intensive care and including the case when during a surgery they, they lost electric power and it was terrible, terrible situation. Hospital rooms and the temperature was like plus 12. Then we needed a generator, but it's quite expensive thing. And finally we get generator f- from European uh, Union, thanks to them uh, really for support. There is big need in uh, some unique medicine and some unique uh, things for surgery. Yeah, and, and we really need support. Thank you for what you're doing in Slav Ukraine.
1: of a recruiting agency mm-hmm. and things have changed. Now, Victoria is involved in so many projects that I have hard time listing them on the fingers of one hand. First of all, Victoria and her family had to
5: relocate from her son to Odessa we uh, moved to Odessa only like my husband and my child because my parents and grandparents uh, my aunts relatives they didn't want to leave the city so they stayed during and, the occupation yes till the liberation And so let's
1: start with your activities that are connected with Kherson. You started to help the city after the liberation.
5: We started to help Kherson uh, during occupation because uh, the city was blocked and uh, no any medicine remained in the city. So first of all we made advertisement that uh, for our friends and uh, neighbors, that uh, if they need something from medicine, they can contact us. So, we collected the uh, all medicine as per lists and found some people, we called them kamikazes, <laughs> mm. who, who were enough brave to bring it to Kherson while occupation.
1: And go through the Russian blog posts yes. that was allowed, right? And come back.
5: Yes, see some blog posts, they allowed to bring some medicine. Uh, for cigarettes or alcohol.
1: They could be bribed, but yes. yet that was very, very dangerous. They yes. were risking their lives to bring the medicine, right?
5: Sometimes uh, those military, Russian military, liked something from our goods, from medicine, and they uh, could take it for themselves, or they could just take everything, like including car (laughs) and medicine. Now that we know that the city of
1: Kherson is under constant shelling with Mm -hmm. the Russians, you are still going there to help those who still remain in the city?
5: After liberation, yes, we created a team who covered roofs and broken windows. We received a lot of calls and messages asking to help their grandparents or parents because there was no one uh, who was working, you couldn't employ or ask any man to come and do this job and it was really cold on that time so we bought all materials, brought them to Kherson and started to recover
1: And you are in charge of this group of boys, correct?
5: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This is my job, recruiting.
1: (laughs) Getting back to Odessa, you were very active here as well. Tell me a little bit about this project with your other friend, uh, where you started to convert the clothes plant uh, to produce military items.
5: Actually, we started in March 2022. Because a lot of our seafarers, they joined military and they didn't have any clothes, socks, T-shirts, nothing, warm clothes. And my friend, she has her own plant, and they were producing some dresses for, for sure. fashion. Yes. High fashion. <laughs> and she was shocked for my, with my new offer, new idea, but she didn't refuse. She said, OK, let's do it. So we started producing the military clothes. The uh, quantity of requirements was growing. So we found one Turkish man who supplied us materials and we could continue it until spring 2023. Then you also decided to study the inner
1: works of propaganda and brainwashing.
5: The reason uh, why i uh, interested with propaganda is occupied territories. For example, my relatives, they are on the left side of Kherson, still there, and on, at some point they started to tell me that uh, they're afraid that Ukraine left them and no one will liberate them. And so on. And I was shocked because just a few months ago they were dreaming that Ukraine will liberate them. And I thought how it works, so I asked them uh, which TV you are watching, news, this, this, this. And I uh, realized that Telegram channels, uh, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, newspapers, television, they are using all uh, possibilities to bring information systematically to the people. So by the time, like two, three months you need, watching this or listening this, you start to believe that really Russia, uh, powerful country who can liberate all countries around.
1: (laughs) I saw this in liberated territories as well, say in Kharkiv Oblast, there were people who also stayed without any information and for them only the Russian sources were available and they were quite brainwashed as well Mm -hmm. so that's a very important
5: uh, subject and you and your friends and colleagues produced the whole report on that yes we are working in recruiting so we are communicating with different nationalities countries and so on and we realized that uh, the influence of propaganda different in any countries for example in some countries it has maximum influence at some countries not so we started to investigate uh, how it works and which sources uh, russia is using that's fantastic, and I would love to bring you
1: back on our show to talk in depth about this study. So I'm looking forward to speaking about that in the future. But meanwhile, that's not all that you do. I understand that you also uh, provided some psychological
5: help for children of the families who were internally displaced. Yes, after liberation of Kerson a lot of families uh, left Uh, the city with their children. We helped them to find uh, accommodation here in Odessa To find help and including psychologists help we created some groups where we were inviting parents and children for events where the children could draw some pictures how they see ukraine in present time and how they would like to see ukraine in the future
1: that's a wonderful project and we have a workbook here which i'm looking at there are suggestions for the kids how they can see ukraine changing for the better which must be so much of a relief for the kids and even this is not all i feel we're just scratching the surface because i know you're also helping to collect money for drones for the ukrainian drone army as well
5: right yes since the beginning of invasion needs of drones was really huge and we were buying mavic it's very expensive at some point we realized that ukraine has uh, to find solution here so we found engineers we found people who can bring us spare parts and those drones uh, now we can collect them in ukraine in odessa
1: (laughs) that's fantastic so to round it up victoria
5: what do you think of the role of a woman during the war if you know the The role of women is very huge in Ukraine. Uh, Here, women's combining of power, (laughs) of positive uh, actions, and uh, women took part in all segments. When uh, women realized that their children are in danger, all women were maximum effective in their special role. There can be a nursey. it can be engineering, military. What I have seen is um, all women took part covering of our military. Each woman. If you ask any woman in Ukraine, each woman donated and did something uh, for helping our military. Each third woman helped the refugees. Each fifth uh, woman took part in uh, medical help uh, with uh, military.
1: And we are a podcast, so you don't have the visual, but Victoria is a very beautiful woman (laughs) and well, fine strengths in them,
5: attend to themselves in a dignified way. Thank you so much. I've seen a lot of women in different countries, but uh, Ukrainian women—they passed really hard times uh, during our uh, life. So now, you cannot make them afraid of something. <laughs> so now
1: they are not afraid. Yeah. Yes.
5: Thank you very much, and we will see you again on our show and Slava Ukraina. Slava. <laughs>